Well, welcome everybody. We're really glad that you're here. Um, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, we are in the middle of a series. We spent the fall going through Philippians, which is really great. It's almost Advent, which will pre- prepare us for Christmas. And we have a, a six-week series, um, a topical series, on this idea of preparing your heart for the holidays. And I don't know if your family is anything like my family, but as you gear up for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, you're going to find yourself sitting around a table of people that you probably in your real world may never have spent time with, right? Like if you had to choose who are my six and 10 best friends, you know, your family may or may not make that cut, right? And so you now have this diverse group of people. It's a little bit challenging. You have family of origin issues. Like it's this complex thing. And what we thought about is having a series that would kind of give us some tools so that we could navigate that time really well. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a topic which I think um, is one of my most favorite topics. It gets me in the most trouble, but it's this idea that we want to be people that disagree well. And no one likes disagreeing anymore. Um, But we're going to try it out this morning, and uh, Jeff's coming back next week, and so there's only so much trouble um, that I can get into. But let's start with this. I have a question for you. What is your favorite color? Okay, I want you to think. I want you to commit. And I'm going to count to three, and you're going to tell me out loud what your favorite color is, okay? No backsies here. Okay. One, two, three. Okay. I'm not going to lie. I was expecting it to be unanimous, but it wasn't. So we're going to, try to, we're going to, we're going to narrow your choices down a little bit, okay? So you, you shared your favorite color, which is great. But now if you had to choose between purple, green, and orange... You have to commit. Purple, green, or orange, what is your favorite? And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So how many think purple is their favorite color? Oh, excited people too. Okay, purple. What about how many uh, would say green is their favorite color out of those three? Okay, and then how many are orange? All right. Woo! Okay. All right, green people, sorry, you lost. We're, gonna, we're, we're eliminating you. Now we're going down to purple and orange. So now you only have two choices. All the purple people, raise your hand. Where are the purple people at? All right. And then the orange people? Orange it. Okay, here's the bad news. Purple's the wrong color. I'm sorry to find out. Not only is it the wrong color, that means that orange is the right color. Not only is orange the right color, orange is the good color, which means purple is the evil color. If you think purple is your favorite color, then you have aligned yourself with the evil color. So how, where are my purple people at? Who's still like, yeah, I don't care. A couple of you, yeah. Some of you are like, oh, I didn't know it was evil. I'm going orange. Some of you are like, no, I don't care. Well, what's interesting is what your favorite color is, is it's a subjective thing. You have an idea. And the reality is there's a bazillions of colors, right? We live in a totally beautiful, colorful, complex world. There's so many colors. And you know, and we know, at least I sure hope, right, that color is a subjective thing. And so for me to say purple's evil, you're like, well, you're stupid. And I still like purple, right? But even to have to narrow it down to two choices and even to have their choices then now have a value of good or evil, I feel like is like the perfect epitome of where we are as a culture. We live in the most beautiful, complex, incredible time. There's so much diversity of everything, especially of food. It's so good, right? And yet we've somehow limited everything to come down to everything being a binary choice, And not only is everything a binary choice, between those choices, one is good and one is evil, and it is causing us to go crazy. And so I think that there is this giant, giant split happening in our culture. And if we want to figure out how we're going to disagree well, then I think it's helpful to kind of get a sense of what in the world's going on in the world around us, 
to kind of understand the lay of the land. And then I think Jesus gives us a really good model of how to begin to navigate this really hard cultural divide. Because how we disagree matters for family gatherings, it matters for how you work, it matters to be followers of Christ, it matters how everything that we do, we live in such a complex world, every human interaction you have, we have to figure this thing out. And so to own that we live in this giant cultural divide. And so there's two, um, two big cultures that are in conflict right now. And the first is this. It's an honor culture. And an honor culture is a culture where your value and your dignity and your self-worth is kind of externally held. And because it's externally held, that means that it can be violated. And because it can be violated, it means it needs to be defended. And uh, Clint Eastwood, right, he's the perfect uh, picture of this. I don't know if there's any Clint Eastwood fans. Um, I only know the old Clint Eastwood because I'm a little young, but um, I did some Clint Eastwood research, and this is from a, this movie, A Fistful of Dollars, and this is when Clint Eastwood's young and handsome. And there's, this is this incredible scene. And what's happening in this scene is uh, Clint Eastwood walks into this town, and there's five guys all staring at him, and he's looking all cool. He's Clint Eastwood. And, he's, and basically these guys, you know, they, they shot at his mule. And so he goes and he says, listen, guys, you shot at my mule. You thought that was funny, but my mule doesn't understand your joke. And he wants you to apologize. And these guys are like, uh, we're not apologizing to your mule. And he takes his, like, you know, his shawl thing, his little parka uh, poncho, and he goes, whoosh, puts it over, reveals his gun. And he's like, I actually think you're going to ap apologize to my mule. And they're like, uh, no, we're not. And if you've seen this, this movie or if you know, I mean, you're going to guess what happens. He just blows them all away right? His mule was offended. He had to defend the honor of his mule and to the point of death. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, and, and there's parts of our culture like that. There's parts of the world that are like that. It's so crazy to think if someone disagrees with you, if someone offends your honor, that the correct response is to blow them away. Now, thankfully, we don't fully live in that culture totally, but we, there's this part of the honor culture that's kind of seeped into our culture where our value um, our dignity, our honor is externally held. And so when someone disagrees with us, it, it, it offends us. It hurts us. It so impacts us. And we go, we, we don't have guns and, 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 park, and ponchos anymore. So what we do is we block them. That's like our version. It's an, right? So we, 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 we unfriend them on Facebook. We block them on Twitter. We don't invite them to family gatherings. We exclude these people who have hurt us or wronged us because there's part of this honor culture that's, that's shown up in our culture, right? And what happens is we cannot disagree well in an honor culture because it always ends violently or it ends by excluding people who, who have hurt you in some way. Now, there's another culture that, that's, that's, that's rumbling around in our culture, and that's the dignity culture. And I think Martin Luther King is like the epitome of this culture. A dignity culture is the same thing, that you have value and honor and worth, but instead of it being externally displayed, it's actually found in the very core of your being. It's internally motivated, right? Because that you know who you are, you know where your value resides. If someone impacts you, if someone puts you down, if someone hurts you, if someone um, you know, physically assaults you, mentally assaults you, whatever, it, it, right, it, it doesn't impact you in the same way because you, at the very core of your being, have this dignity culture. The whole civil rights movement right, was this movement of saying, hey, we, we are human beings. We, we, we say we're all part of America and we're endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. 
Well, we're human beings too, endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. And, and Martin Luther King, his entire, um, since like 1955, when he was, began um, being the spokesman of this movement, right, he kept referring everybody back to the Constitution and then back to their faith, which is, no, we are made in the image of God because we're made in the image of God. We have value and dignity. And so it doesn't matter if we get arrested. It doesn't matter if we get beat. We're going to actually have nonviolent um, resistance, and because he was doing nonviolent resistance, capitalizing on the Constitution, leaning into his character of God, right, the whole nation captured. I mean, the, the, the civil rights movement was a spiritual movement led by the African-American community, partnered with the mainline um, white community, and together, right, they changed the world. Because their dignity was found internally. It's a dignity culture. And all those people were treated so horribly, right? But they couldn't block them, and they couldn't shoot them. It's a dignity culture. And really what Martin Luther King was doing, what people who, have, who excel in dignity culture, is they are actually just simply modeling Christ. Jesus actually is our true example of what it means to value, I mean, to model dignity culture. Jesus is the example. He was a human being, but he wasn't just a human being. He was God incarnate, right? He was God. He knew exactly who he was. He knew all of who his value was. And because he understood all of who he was and all of whose value was, when people spit on him, when his disciples betrayed him, even when he died on the cross, he knew who he was, he knew who the people were, right? And he knew what his mission was. In fact, I mean, Jesus says this when he's, while he's being crucified in Luke chapter 23. He says this, So two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with these two criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And then Jesus says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And then they divide up his clothes by casting lots. I mean, what an incredibly powerful statement that Jesus, while he's being crucified, while he's being mocked, while he's experiencing every kind of pain, physical, emotional, and spiritual possible, his posture is, Father, forgive them. Because he knew who these people were. He knew that they, were, that they didn't know all the whole story. They didn't fully understand who he was. That, God, that his posture towards them was to offer forgiveness. He knew that he was God. He knew that these people were also made in the image of God. He knew that his mission was to ultimately die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that all human beings would have access to God, be adopted into the family of God. And so when we think about how do we want to disagree well, and when it's everything from family fights, to politically, to theologically, to what kind of job your, your daughter-in-law is doing, whatever. Like you all have your family system, right? We all disagree well. And if we're going to enter in this posture, we need to first put on and recognize that we are followers of Christ, that Jesus is our example. And so we want to put on the mantle of Christ as we begin to enter, entertain and engage people that we disagree with. And so there's three things that we need to do if we're going to do this well. One is we need to develop our mind, develop our thoughts, the second thing is we have to soften our hearts. And then the third thing that we're going to have to do is really embrace our true identity as children of Christ. Okay, so the very first thing we want to do is we want to understand this idea of developing our mind. So if you've ever been to the gym, right, you work out, you make your muscles nice and strong, and then what you do is you keep adding weight and you keep adding weight. That's how it works. If you don't keep adding weight, then you stop growing. Well, our brain, I don't think it's a muscle, but I think of it as a muscle, right? And it's this soft, malleable, uh, mushy thing in our head. And we have to develop it. We have to grow or it becomes brittle and it becomes firm and it becomes unhelpful. And we have to be people that are developing our thoughts. 
1859, John Stuart Mill wrote this book on On Liberty. And it's an old book, and I don't like reading old books. And so I read the cliff notes of it, and then I read the Wikipedia of it, and then I distilled it down to four things, which I can still only have three points to. So I may not have got this right, but I still think it's incredibly helpful for how in the world do we engage people who disagree with us. So this is what he says. Number one, if we silence an opinion, it actually may be true, and we assume our own infallibility. And what's interesting is right out of the gate, we think we are right. I have yet to meet the person who just wanders through the world thinking, I'm so wrong and I love being wrong. I've yet to meet that person. We all think we're right. And what's so funny is we all disagree, right? So what are we going to do? Who is right and who is wrong? And because we all think we're right, what happens is when we get a dissenting opinion, we mostly block them, we, we shut them away, we pull them away. But then we've, 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 what we're doing is we're proving our own infallibility. We think that all of human knowledge, all of human experience, all of understanding of theology and whose God is, all pointed, all of human history to you. And you now understand everything completely. If you're not willing to think of another perspective, if you're not willing to engage in another perspective, then that is basically your posture. You think you are infallible. And I know that you don't want to think that way, right? So we want to be humble and teachable opinions. So we don't want to silence opinions. The second says, it may be an error because you're right. You already know the other opinion is an error. So ah, relax, you're already right. So it may be an error, but it may contain a portion of the truth and should be examined. And what I think is interesting, of all the things that I've examined, of all the things I've wrestled through, of all the uh, positions I've held on everything, uh, and on every single thing under the sun, it's been pretty rare that all of a sudden I believed one thing, and then I read uh, an article or a book or had an argument, and then I thought something different. Like, that never happens. However, over the course of my life, my opinions and thoughts and convictions have actually changed a lot about a number of things. And all those changes happen by little incremental disagreements, discussions, thinking about finding error in my own arguments to the point where actually some of, my, some of the things that I held, especially in my 20s, I was fully in error, but I had no idea about. And so it's fine to go, listen, I may be in error, but there actually may, that, that opinion may be in error, but there's a portion of the truth that it has to offer. All right, number three, unless the whole truth is vigorously and earnestly contested, it will be held in prejudice and the doctrine is in danger of being lost or inefficacious. I don't know how to pronounce that, but that's, you get the gist. But the way that I understood these, these two points is that when we disagree with somebody, if we aren't open to another perspective, if we're not open to somebody else's thoughts or perspective, what we're doing is we're starting to build a house um, and, and the foundation become, gets to, becomes fragile. We think we're building a house. We think we're doing great. What's great, you know, we live here in Marin. Most people agree with, the, with everyone in Marin. And you can walk into a store and you can say something, right? Because everyone feels like they all agree. But what happens is if, you, if you're not aware of other arguments, you end up believing these things that, are, that, that the foundation is brittle and will just collapse um, on, on further inspection. And so we want to be people who listen to other arguments. And I love listening to other arguments because what happens is either I end up changing or I get even more convicted on, I mean, convinced on what I think. Right? So it's not saying there's nothing out there, there's no truth, there's, everything is an opinion. But what we're saying is we want to be part of the process of sifting through, of understanding what we believe. And so we can't be scared of other opinions. We can't be scared of totally divergent opinions. We can't silence them. We can't cut them out. We actually want to expose them and debate them and let, um, and let the best thoughts win the day. So we have to exercise our mind. That's the first thing we need to do.
Okay, here's the second thing. That disagreement, you may not realize this, but to actually disagree with somebody, it's in our DNA. It's in our DNA. So this last fall, I guess a couple, a month and a half ago or so, I was invited to go to temple with Chad Katoff to go to a Rosh Hashanah service. And I grew up Jewish, but I grew up in Reformed Jewish. I grew up in the kind of Judaism, which is like you go to, Christmas, uh, go to church on Christmas and Easter every five years. Like, that's like the version of Judaism I grew up in. And so I've never been to a conservative temple before. I've never been um, and experienced it. So I was all excited. I get to go to temple on a high holiday and experience this. And so we go into the city and, uh, and you know, you, we walk in the temple and you get the prayer shawl and you pray, you pray the blessing before you put the prayer shawl on, you put the yarmulke on and we sit in this beautiful sanctuary and we just, and, and we're there for the service. It's like a two and a half hour service. So like our hour and 10 minutes, like we got nothing, okay? Like this is a piece of cake. So it was, it's over two hours. And, uh, and imagine like basically a high Catholic church in a foreign language. Like that's kind of what it felt like. But I'm just soaking it up. I mean, everybody looked like my great uncle Maury, you know? I'm like, I just, this is awesome. Well, they do everything, and everything is happening in Hebrew, but then it comes time for the sermon. And they actually stole our sermon, the scriptures idea, where they did a sermon and then they allowed conversation with the, with the congregation. Well, every day on the second day of, uh, of, of Rosh Hashanah, the, the teaching, the Bible portion for that day is the story about Abraham and Isaac. And if you're familiar with that, it's kind of a controversial story. Abraham, the father of faith, is told by God to take his son up the hill and, and sacrifice him. And as a, as a Jewish person on a high holiday, the rabbi is, you know, preaching about Abraham pa- passing this test. But then he did this wild thing. He invited the associate rabbi to come up to give the alternate perspective. So this woman comes up, so he, he makes his point, And then this woman comes up and says, no, Abraham actually failed the test. Because a few chapters earlier, Abraham fought with God to save Sodom and Gomorrah. If God could only find a couple righteous people, would you not save that city? And then all of a sudden to his own son, he's like, okay, God, I guess I'm going to go kill my son. And she makes this argument that Abraham failed the test. And I'm like, oh boy, here I am in conservative synagogue with the head rabbi opening, making space for the associate rabbi to be in total disagreement over one of the foundational stories of Judaism. Right? It'd be like if Jeff and I came up, up here and we debated whether or not the Apostle Paul was really authoritative for the church. I mean, that's the kind of level of disagreement that would be happening and that's happening. I'm watching this. And then they let open up the congregation and the congregation starts getting after it. And it is wild. It was the most incredible experience I've ever been in. And finally, like you realize your brain can only handle so much dissonance at a time. And all of a sudden, some poor old lady goes, listen, which perspective is right? This is too much. And the woman rabbi, she says this. She says, she, she leans in to this kind of this ancient uh, tradition, wisdom literature in the Agata that talks about the 70 faces of Torah. That when we read Torah, there's, there's 70 perspectives. And so she just says off the cup, it's not this perspective or this perspective, but there's actually 68 other perspectives that there's room for. I was like, whoa, like that blew my mind. And, uh, and afterwards I went out uh, with Chad and we got some coffee and I was like, isn't it incredible? In the Jewish tradition, the joy is in wrestling with the scriptures and wrestling and wrestling and trying to find the right interpretation. And somewhere along the line, the church kind of decided anytime we disagree with each other, we're just going to burn each other at the stake. And we have an awful history uh, for all of Christianity because of that.
So that's, that's our Jewish roots. But you may not realize this, but you're here at Marin Covenant Church, and you also are part of this incredible uh, tradition. You are part of this pietistic movement. The Evangelical Covenant Church was this Swedish movement, right? In the 1850s, they, they were these Lutherans uh, in Sweden, and they were tired of everybody fighting over all these different doctrines. And they said, no, 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 we wanted to be people who love Jesus. And their anchor verse was Psalm 119, verse 63, and it says, um, I'm a friend to all who fear thee. That's the King James Version. Isn't that beautiful? I want to be a friend to all who fear thee. That's kind of part of our mission statement, right? That we are people that are moving toward Christ. If you want to know what it means to be part of our community, to fit, to land here, it's because we're people who are moving toward Christ. We're a friend to all who fear thee. And this, I know it doesn't look that diverse to you, but this is a group of, uh, of Swedish hymn makers um, in the 1950s. And, um, but what's incredible is they are working so hard because the Evangelical Covenant Church, which was the Swedish immigrant church, had been opening itself up to have some theological diversity. And even though they grew up Lutheran, all of a sudden all these Baptists and Anabaptists were coming and being a part of the church. And people who were now believed in believers' baptism were now part of this church that believed in infant baptism. And it was blowing their minds and their theological diversity was growing. And they were trying to figure out how do we create a hymn that will satisfy the the theological and spiritual needs of the entire community? And what's funny is this group of old white guys and gals who are Andersons and Olsons and whatever sort of Swedish names are there, because of their tradition, right, they actually opened up and the, and the Evangelical Covenant Church is not a Swedish church anymore, right? They gave up their identity because they wanted to expand the doors to anyone who feared Jesus. Anyone who's on this heartfelt, pietistic journey towards Christ gets to be a part. And so now we're a part of a denomination that's 30% multi-ethnic, that there's so many types of worship, it would blow your mind, that on a Sunday, just like today, you could go to New York uh, City and be a part of a gospel-centered church and a hip-hop church. Um, you could go down to Los Angeles and have an entire service in Spanish. You could have a, go to the plains of Nebraska and find a little Swedish Lutheran-style high church church in our church and everything in between. And we're trying to figure out how do we stay together and disagree well because disagreement is part of our DNA. We disagree because we are people who are moving toward Christ. And it's in our Jewish roots, and it's our pietistic roots. And lastly, it's our family identity that gives us freedom to disagree. There's something really weird that the way that God made us, um, that we give um, preeminence, I don't know, we we give uh, favor to our family, right? Like we go to Thanksgiving, we sit around family, and even though you could disagree with all of them, I love last week Danielle was like, you know, Uncle Todd and whatever he's going to say at Thanksgiving, you're like, oh, we all have Uncle Todd, or maybe you're Uncle Todd, right? And it's like, what do you do with them? But for some reason you tolerate Uncle Todd because he is connected to you in your DNA, and there's no rational reason for it. Like there's no like, oh, because you're my uncle, I need to tolerate you. Like there's, and in fact, more and more we're like, that's not happening. But in the core of our being, we're connected because of family. Family somehow smooths over all these disagreements. All of a sudden you realize all these disagreements you have, all the ways that you see the world politically and even theologically, they all matter, but they're not the core of who you're being. Your your family, right, is the core of your being. And I love how Jesus, um, through the Apostle Paul, just totally messes with everybody here. In Galatians chapter 3, he says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Because what happens is when it goes, because if you go, family is, that's our number one indicator. Then it's my family versus your family. And there's been blood feuds for families forever and ever. And I love that the Christian story is going, oh my goodness, how do we expand the family of God? 
And so it's not my family and your family. It's not even become Jewish and Gentile, right? It's now if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you're now adopted as daughters and sons of the King Most High. And your family identity is now found in the family of God through Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is an incredible, powerful, and offensive statement. Especially in our context, we have so many ways in which we identify ourselves. In fact, all of our identities are ways that we are kind of marking out this new territory of who can agree with me and who cannot agree with me. But as Christians, as followers of Christ, all of a sudden to say, you know what? It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Your race no longer matters. Your class no longer matters. Your gender no longer matters. Your true identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is your, your, uh, your, your race does matter. Your gender does matter. Your class does matter. Your gifts do matter. Your perspective does matter. But it matters as part of the body of Christ. So instead of cutting away everybody who's not like you, Jesus is what holds us all together. Now, Jesus is the head, we're the body, and all of our unique perspectives, all of our unique ways we understand the world, all of our unique gifts and talents and passions are now informing the family of God that we now get to be on mission to do what God's invited us to do, to be about the kingdom of God. I mean, that's like an incredible, incredible thing that God's inviting us to do and incredibly hard. And so it's our family identity that allows us to do this. And so here's the really hard part, is how in the world are we actually going to practice this? Because if we really are going to be God's people, if we are really going to be people who are smart, who wrestle with things intellectually, can handle diversity of thought, are going to be able to be around people, both our families and as a church, we have to grow in these things. And so there's three quick things that I'd just like to encourage you to say, man, these are three things to try on if you want to be someone who can disagree well, both for Thanksgiving, here as a church, and for your whole life. And the first is this. I would compel you to read and listen to things that you disagree with. Gosh, we love affirming what we believe. Listen, you're already smart. You're already right. Everyone knows you're right. Like, settle on that. Yes, you're right. So now, you being right, you should be free to want to understand why people think about things differently. Why do people understand the world differently? Why do people have different political positions and theological positions? Why does your family think about you in a certain way? Here's a super hard one. You have a conflict with someone in your family. What would it be like to go to somebody else in your family and go, what did you think about how that whole thing went down? Well, that is way too scary. But if we're people who want to embrace disagreement, embrace diversity of thought, What would it be like to be open to letting other people, other things, challenge our thoughts, to push back against us, maybe strengthen our own convictions? So I would encourage you to do that. And if you have things that you think I should be reading, man, send me emails. I would love to know. You need to read this more. It happens all the time. Um, Every now and then I'll get a little envelope with like cutouts of newspapers, like you need this in your life. That just shows you the demographic that that I get cards from. Okay, that's one. Here's the second thing. If we want to, to grow our mind and we want, we want to develop our mind, the second thing is we have to grow our hearts. Here's what's crazy. We treat each other that we disagree with like they want to murder us. 
that everyone that we disagree with, we treat them like they hate our guts and they want to murder us and they're evil people. But that's not the case because I know that you're not an evil person. I know that you have a different opinion than me. And for some reason, we just like cut out everybody who disagrees with us. But what if you actually had a generous heart towards someone that you disagreed with? And you had a posture towards them like, maybe you're not an evil, ignorant loser, but maybe you're someone who just sees the world differently. Maybe we actually agree, but you put a higher value on certain other things than I do. We actually value the same thing. You just rank them differently. Wouldn't that be mind-blowing? Right? We do that in a family. We do that as a pietist family, we, that we are able to give each other the benefit of the doubt, to be warm-hearted towards each other, to be fascinated by each other's opinions, and to listen and draw out and to understand each other. And then here's the third thing. The only way that this works is that our identity in Christ has to be the foremost, most important defining attribute of who we are. The way we work as a church to have such wide diversity in so many areas is because we're a church where spiritually hungry people are moving toward Christ. And if I think back to my own life, to my own spiritual journey, the things that I think about now, my convictions now, the way I understand God now, they're really different than just a few years ago to even 20 years ago. But if I'm moving toward Christ, if I'm willing to say, listen, I'm on this journey towards Christ, I'm on a journey to have Jesus have more and more access to my life, that I'm going to submit more and more of my life to him, that what that means for me in this moment is going to, has to be different than what it means for you in this moment. But instead of it being a race or judging each other because we're in different spots, we get to be, journey, we get to be sojourners together. And I get to be fascinated and encouraged because of where you're at in your journey. And, I get, and you get to be challenged by where I'm at in my journey, right? And that happens because Jesus is our main identifier. Jesus is the, the umbrella that we all live under. And what's interesting is the more and more we understand our identity, the less and less people who disagree with us, it impacts us. I always think of it this way, that if I'm really having a hard time with somebody, I imagine if this was a kindergartner telling me this, what would I think? And the truth is I wouldn't care right? Even if they were right, if some kindergartner came up to me and told me anything about what I think, about who I am, or if they put me down in any way, I'd go, well, you just learned how to like go to the bathroom a year ago. You know, I'd just be like, that's you. God bless you. And because it doesn't impact you. But if someone who's really powerful says something to me that way, right, it crushes me on so many levels. But the more our identity is rooted in Christ, the more like we can actually have people's perspectives in right um, proportion. And we recognize we're not in an honor culture, but that we're a dignity culture. And we're a dignity culture because our rooted identity is found in Jesus Christ. And man, may God have mercy on all of us as we get ready to engage family, as we go out in the coffee and engage each other. We have to be a people that disagree well for the sake of the kingdom. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll wrap up our time this morning. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I'm so thankful for your patience and grace towards me, towards us as a church towards Christians in general. I think if I'm honest, we, we want to be right. Not in our best, it's not because we're pig-headed and proud, but we want to honor you. We want to love you. We want to do what's right by you. And so God, I just pray that you would be generous towards us, that we'd be generous towards each other, that we would be open to other perspectives, to other thoughts, for other ways for understanding the world, even understanding you. And those would challenge us, they would shape us, they would refine us. But mostly, God, that they would spur us on, on this journey toward you to submit more and more of our lives to you. 
so that we can model your son, Jesus, to know who we are, to know who others are, and to be on mission, to be about expanding your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And all of God's kids said, amen.